0: Chapter 17. It would be helpful to have that passage open, which we read earlier, Genesis 17, as we come to study today God's everlasting covenant. God's everlasting covenant. Well, when an architect is is doing his work of assessing a building or drawing up plans, he'll make sure that there are some load bearing walls in the building. Uh, Some parts of the structure need to bear more weight. Than the others. They're they're crucially important. Knock them out and the whole building could fall down. Well, Genesis 17 is, if you like, a load bearing wall for the the whole Bible. It's not hard to see what the main focus is in Genesis 17. The word covenant is used 10 times in the first 14 verses. And and indeed, as as Reformed and confessional Presbyterians, we, we believe that covenant is the main thing in the entire Bible. I'll remind you again of the definition of covenant that we've used. We, we used it back in the autumn for a covenant renewal. and uh, We thought about it again a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 15. A covenant is a solemn, binding, personal commitment between at least two parties. And in the Bible, it's about who God is and what God promises and how we are to respond to God's promises. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God calls this covenant with Abraham an everlasting covenant. A covenant that still has implications and ramifications. A covenant that is still in effect all these thousands of years later. A covenant that has importance for almost the entire rest of Scripture from this point onwards. A load-bearing wall, you might say, for Scripture. Indeed, God's covenant here with Abraham... And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Christians celebrate each Lord's Day, they're directly connected. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, that if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you believe in him and his person, his work, his resurrection, then you are Abraham's spiritual offspring. Heirs, Paul says, according to the promise, or we could say according to the covenant Before we get into the specifics of this everlasting covenant today, I want to just by way of introduction emphasize to you the almighty God who made this covenant with Abraham. And we could spend much more time on this, but uh, just by way of introduction, if you look at Genesis 17 verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. God Almighty. The word is El Shaddai in the Hebrew. It means the all powerful God. The God of strength. The God who can do what would seem to us impossible things. This is the God who comes and makes a a personal gracious commitment to Abraham. And all the initiative and all the work and all the emphasis in this chapter is on the fact that it is God who makes this covenant. Over and over again we read, we read, I will do this. I will make my covenant. I will give you the land. I will give you offspring. God comes to Abraham. God makes the promises. God does virtually all the talking about what God will do. One writer says, God simply dominates the chapter. Abram is a worn out old man. He's virtually dead physically speaking. He's 99 years old. His body is done. His strength is diminished. But the God of all strength, of all power comes to him. And makes these astounding covenant commitments for him. And again in Abraham's life God shows up and shows him that he's the God who can do the impossible. This is nearly a a quarter of a century now after he first called Abraham and promised him all these things. It all seems so baffling and unlikely and as we'll see later, laughable, humanly speaking. But this is God Almighty. Nothing is impossible with him. His covenant promises are, are to be believed. What he has promised, he will do. So I want to think about three aspects of this covenant that God made with Abraham. We could probably go into much more about it today. As I say, it's such an important text. But just three things to consider today. First of all, the promises of God's covenant. The promises of God's covenant. I'll try to just summarize them in, in three, three promises in particular. First of all, God gives Abraham here the promise of life. Life. In verse 5, God announces that he's changing Abram's name. He says, no longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And so for the remainder of our series, I'll not be getting caught and caught out, whether I call him Abram or Abraham. It'll just be Abraham from now on. It's a relief for the preacher. Uh, but Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And so the the impact of this covenant is marked uh, very, very powerfully in the fact that Abraham is a change of name. It's an appropriate change of name. Father of a multitude. A multitude of nations. A multitude of people will come from Abraham. Not just physically, but spiritually as well, as I've mentioned already. And as we'll think again later. Abraham will have this. Daily reminder now, every time he hears his name said, every time he introduces himself to someone, he will have this reminder, God will keep his promises. Not only will he give life to me, he will give life through me to a multitude, to nations. Look at verse six. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This again is a a 99 year old man I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. As we considered last week in chapter 16, children were a guarantee of security in later life in that culture, in that time. And of course, a guarantee that your family name would live on and that all that you had worked for, whether it be land or possessions, that in a sense it would live on in the hands of your children. Uh, It was the closest human beings thought they could get in that time to living forever in a in one level by having children. But Abraham isn't just going to have children. He's going to be the father of nations. Life will come, God says, from this old, nearly dead man to the whole world. Promise of life. It also gives him the promise of land. Uh, verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Abraham has now been in the land of Canaan for over 20 years, and yet, technically, legally speaking, he still doesn't own a scrap of it. We'll see next week as we get into chapter 18 that he's still living in tents, whereas Lot, who's gone off to Sodom, of course, is living in a house. But God says you will own this land. The whole land. Your offspring for generations will own this land. It will be theirs forever. And as long as they live within the bounds of my covenant. It will be a land of peace. Of fruitfulness. A beautiful land to call their own. And then there's also the promise of legacy. At the end of verse 7. God says this will be an everlasting covenant. That he will be God to you and your offspring after you. God Almighty has shown up in Abraham's life and entirely changed his life. Remember we saw back when we began our series, Abraham was a pagan. He was worshipping false gods with his family in a far distant land. But God had called him. God had been gracious to him. When Abraham had made mistakes like In chapter 12 or chapter 16, God has forgiven him. And now God Almighty promises Abraham that he's willing to do all of that, not just for him, but for his offspring. That he's willing to show the same grace and be the same forgiving, merciful God to Abraham's children and to his children's children's children. The power of God Almighty will always be available for Abraham's offspring. One writer says that the godness of God, his holiness, his goodness, his sovereignty over Abraham's life, it'll all be there to avail of for Abraham's offspring if they show the same trust and commitment to God as Abraham does. God will be there for them just as he is here for Abraham. And so God's covenant with Abraham will leave a long legacy. It's a covenant that will be on offer for all the generations, all the children of Abraham still to come. Life, land and legacy. And friends, these beautiful, glorious promises that God made to Abraham, they have been extended and they have been built upon and they are packaged to us In the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are still on offer today. In and through Jesus Christ. The reason Christians all over the world meet for worship on the first day of the week. Is to celebrate the fact that on this day. Jesus rose from the dead. And in so doing has secured life and land and legacy for all of us. In Jesus Christ we have the promise of life. In Abraham's day the most people could hope for was that their children bearing their name would live on beyond them. Guarding all that their parents had acquired for them. Today we we don't have to pin all our hopes on whether or not we have children as much as children are a blessing. But instead we know that in Christ we ourselves will live forever. And that if we belong to Christ we are part of a spiritual family that we have many brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children that were part of a people bought and purchased by Jesus Christ who will live forever, not just spiritually, but physically with Jesus Christ. Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, only the first little bit of a much bigger harvest still to come that just as Jesus has been raised from the dead... So all those who trust him will also be raised from the dead. In Jesus Christ we also have the promise of land. Not Canaan, not just one bit of the earth. But the new heavens and the new earth. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 10 that the whole world will be burned up, refined and made new and perfect. And we will rule with Christ in that world made new and perfect. That's the glorious inheritance that God Almighty has promised to us. And in Jesus Christ, the the legacy of of these covenant promises lives on as well. Listen again to Paul's words. In many ways, it's a commentary on what we look look at here in Genesis 17. But Paul's words in Galatians 3.26, he says... In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He says in verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. So you don't have to be able to biologically trace your lineage to Abraham. You just have to have faith in the same Savior that Abraham had his faith in. We thought a few weeks ago about that. Momentous statement about Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 6. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham simply believed God's promises by faith. We'll see in a moment how he expressed that faith and obedience. But it was faith that justified Abraham. And it is faith likewise friends that justifies us. Faith in what Christ has secured for us. By his life, death and resurrection. So in Christ, the promise of life and land and legacy is still held out. I wonder if you seized hold of those promises by faith today. Do you have the same saving faith that Abraham had? Do you have the same hope and expectation of life and land and legacy as Abraham did? The world is, is busy offering us up counterfeit promises of life and land and legacy. Every TV advert or internet advert you see offers you some combination of these things. Eat these foods, take these precautions, experience this holiday, embrace this identity. But as the psalmist says in Psalm 90, all of the life and land and legacy that the world has to offer is soon gone. It's like dust falling through our fingers and then we fly away, the psalmist says, we go on to eternity. Where will you be in that eternity? Do you have faith that through Christ you will have life and land and legacy in that eternity? The God Almighty Has provided for you the salvation that you need, the forgiveness of sin that you need, the Saviour that you need. All you need to do is trust and receive those wonderful promises. The promises of God's covenant. Secondly, the sign attached to God's covenant. The sign attached to God's covenant. If you look at verse 10, look at the command God gives for Abraham and his sons, the way they were to show that they believed what God was saying. Verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision is the the cutting off of the excess flesh on the male reproductive organ. A mark on the most intimate part of a man's body. A mark in a sense that covers the children and the offspring that could come from that man. And in that sense covers the whole family even though it was only administered to the males. And circumcision was a sign, an outward physical act carried out by Abraham and his household to demonstrate that they believed these covenant promises of God. So a physical act demonstrating spiritual faith, if you like. Circumcision was actually quite a common practice in uh, parts of Abraham's world, the ancient world in those days, still a practice in other uh, tribes and cultures today. And so Abraham was by no means the first person uh, to do this. But the difference with Abraham is that physical circumcision, by God's command, points toward, it's a sign of, Spiritual realities. That's what a sign does. It, it points to something else. We put up signs out on the on, on Bridge Road when we use Tremor High School for worship. We, we don't expect people to stop at the sign and, and wait for a worship service to begin out there on the footpath. Uh, we expect them to realise that the sign is pointing them inside to the school building where worship will take place. A sign points to... The reality. And that was the case for the circumcision commanded by God. It wasn't that simply being circumcised made Abraham right with God. We've already seen in Genesis 15, way before he was circumcised, that he was justified by faith. And circumcision was that faith being expressed. It was Abraham saying, I believe that this is what God needs to do in my heart. In my life, he needs to cut away what does not belong. He needs to deal with my sin and cover me with his righteousness. And because of where it was on his body that Abraham received this sign, there was another message in it. My children need their sin cut off, cut away as well. The sign of the covenant. As Christians today, of course, we believe that there is a new and more appropriate sign of God's covenant which has replaced circumcision, and that is the sign of baptism. Paul equates the two, spiritually speaking, in Colossians two eleven and 12. He says, uh, we read it earlier, In him also you were circumcised, notice this, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, By the circumcision of Christ. So he's speaking here in spiritual terms. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith. In the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. Circumcision involved the shedding of a little blood. The cutting away of flesh. On the cross Jesus had his innocent blood shed. Literally the guilt of our sin was removed. So no more blood ever needs to be shed. It would be inappropriate to have any rite or ritual or sign in the Christian faith that involved the the need for shedding of blood. Jesus has finished that. Jesus' blood is enough. Jesus' blood was perfect. And so it's appropriate that we now have a new sign and seal for the covenant today. Instead of the shedding of blood and circumcision, we have the washing of water in baptism. It's still a sign that our sin, we need to be cleansed from our sin, that our sin needs to be removed from us. But it doesn't involve the shedding of blood because Jesus' blood is the full and final sacrifice for sin. Here's the point, friends. The sign may have changed, but the everlasting covenant promise of God remains the same. That is, I will be God to you and your offspring After you. That the same God Almighty who has saved us, who has provided wonderful promises for us, that those promises are available not just to us, but to our children and our children's children. That's why we believe that the sign of baptism should be applied to the children of Christian parents, as well as to those, of course, who having never been baptized as children profess faith publicly for the first time as adults. And some Christians who, who genuinely and by conviction disagree with us on this, one of the things they would say is, well, how can a little baby possibly know or grasp the significance of the sign of God's grace? Well, of course, the answer is they can't. And we don't believe that we're saving their souls by baptizing, baptizing them. That's a, that's a false uh, doctrine. But equally, friends, how could little baby Isaac or Jacob or Moses have understood the significance of the sign of God's covenant grace when they were circumcised? And yet God commanded that they be circumcised. Ishmael was circumcised. He was already 13 years old and he wasn't going to grow up a believer in his father's God. And yet God wanted the sign of his covenant given To the children of believers back then. And we believe he still wants it given to them today. Baptism Baptism doesn't save anyone. Any more than circumcision saved Abraham or Ishmael or Isaac. But baptism is a picture to them. And to all of us who witness a baptism. That our sin needs to be dealt with. It needs to be washed away by the covenantal grace and mercy of God in Christ. And so if by faith our children, boys and girls here this morning, grow up to seize hold of the promises, if they hear of those promises and believe in those promises, God will be their saviour and their God, just as he has been our saviour and our God. He'll be gracious to them as he has been gracious to us. He'll give them the full blessings of his covenant, life, land and legacy, just as he has given to us in and through Jesus Christ. And so baptism is a wonderful sign of what God Almighty can do, and only God Almighty can do in the lives of needy sinners. The promises of the covenant, the sign of God's covenant, and then thirdly and finally, the miraculous fulfillment of God's covenant. The miraculous fulfillment of God's covenant. Look back at Genesis 17 verse 1. Look what God commanded Abraham. I am God. <coughs> I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. The response God requires to his covenant is faith. We've already seen Abraham's faith demonstrated and obedience. Faith demonstrated in obedience. And Abraham's Abraham's obedience is emphasized very strongly to us in the closing verses of the chapter. If you look at verses 22 to 27, um, if the repeated word in verses 1 to 14 is the word covenant, then the word repeated over and over again at the end of the chapter is the word circumcised. No less than three times in those verses we're told that Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised in accordance with God's command, as well as all the other men of the household. Here was a visible demonstration, friends, of Abraham's faith. It was demonstrated in his obedience to the commands that God gave him. And yet there's a word back in verse 1 that should make us pause. God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. What is blameless? Well, one writer says it's nothing less than moral perfection. Moral perfection. And of course that is not a standard. That even Abraham could ever reach. By himself. And that's where faith came into it. He believed God. Genesis 15.6. And he counted it to him. As righteousness. Blamelessness. In other words friends. Abraham believed that God would supply. All that was needed. For this covenant to be kept. And we saw that in chapter 15. We you saw that covenant ceremony, remember? The two the, the halves of the animals laid out, and ordinarily in a covenant, both parties to the covenant would walk between the pieces of the animal and they were saying, If I don't keep my covenant commitment, let me become just like this dead meat. But between God and Abraham, only the presence of God passed through the carcasses. God taking upon himself the obligations of the covenant, the curse. For breaking the covenant. And so when God here calls Abraham to be blameless. Yes, Abraham demonstrates his faith by obeying God. Undertaking circumcision immediately. But he wasn't a perfect man. We saw that last week in chapter 16. And he was an old, nearly dead man. He didn't have the strength to become a father of a multitude of nations by himself. That's why God Almighty promises to do it all in this covenant. This everlasting covenant is going to be kept and fulfilled because God Almighty will keep it and fulfill it. And he will fulfill it in a miraculous astounding way, a way that first at first makes Abraham laugh in disbelief. If you look at verse 16, God has promised a son uh, and he and God here speaking about Sarah who also gets a name change. He says, I will bless her, (coughs) and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Despite the dreadful mess they made in chapter 16, notice the grace of God here that Abraham and Sarah's sin doesn't trump God's plan. There is going to be a child for them. And it just seems too good to be true to Abraham. He he falls on his face laughing in verse 17. How's a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman going to have a child? It's impossible, Abraham thinks. He even cries out to God in verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, Abraham's still saying, would it not just be a lot easier if the son that I already have could just be the heir? But God is adamant, verse 19, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which some of you in Dramor might already know means he laughs. Abraham laughed at God's plan. For the rest of his life, he'd be laughing at himself. Every time he called his son in from the field for dinner, Abraham would be laughing at himself and praising God for his miraculous fulfillment of his everlasting covenant. God Almighty, who brought life from nearly dead Abraham and Sarah, who despite their sin secured them a legacy, who despite their lowly, tent-dwelling status, promised them a land all of their own. And of course, friends, for us today as well, God has miraculously provided for us to receive life and legacy and land because we're not blameless either. And we can't keep the covenant either. And so God has kept it for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only man who is... Walked before God blamelessly. We sing about it all the time. When you sing Psalm 15, Psalm 25, Psalm 24. We sing of this perfect man. This blameless man. And we might think well what are we doing. Singing about something that we're not. We're singing about one person who is those things. We sing of God only providing his covenant blessings to that kind of person. A blameless person. The Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac was promised to nearly dead Abraham and Sarah, long past the age of giving birth. Jesus was promised to still a virgin Mary, who probably had not been thinking too much about giving birth anytime soon. Isaac, when he was eventually born, was the embodiment of God's promises continuing for another generation. Jesus was and is the embodiment of God's promises guaranteed for every generation. Isaac offered Abraham a glimpse of life after death. Jesus has himself died and risen and now enjoys everlasting life after his death. And he offers life and land and legacy to all of us who, like Abraham, trust in him. And yes, I do mean that Abraham trusted in him, in Jesus. Jesus is the Son, Jesus is rather the God. Who made these covenant promises to Abraham. Jesus is the one Abraham was trusting in. To miraculously fulfill these covenant promises. Again Jesus once said to his skeptical opponents. In John 8 verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. Abraham has died but he lives. Because his son the Lord Jesus has Walked blamelessly and died sacrificially and risen victoriously. Maybe you would laugh today at the thought that God Almighty would ever want anything to do with you. Maybe you feel immense guilt over the mistakes that you've made. Maybe some mess that you've made in your life similar to the kind of mess that Abram and Sarai had made in Genesis 16. Maybe you're in search of some identity or some experience that you feel will will give you that assurance of purpose to your existence and hope for the future. Well, here's the good news. God has provided someone for you who takes away your guilt, who can give you a new identity, and who has secured for you a wonderful future. His name is Jesus. Like Abraham, you only need to believe. And God Almighty will give you power to walk before him, to obey him, to know him, and one day to be with him forevermore. Let's stand as we pray.